as females, what we I've seen and kind of the data and things that I've read is that eating those smaller frequent meals as we age definitely helps our metabolism, helps our metabolism kind of stay um, more active. And then also increasing our protein intake. I think people don't always think about protein. You know, we think about protein, think about supplements and things like that. But that can be natural protein that we get from cottage cheese and yogurts and things like that. Um, so definitely increase, I've noticed increasing your um, protein intake and eating those kind of smaller frequent meals. Of course, physical activity goes a long way. We definitely recommend 30 minutes a day for five days a week or so. We definitely see that that helps decrease weight also. Hey there, I'm Amy Connell. Welcome to Graced Health, the podcast for women who want simple and grace-filled ways to take care of themselves and enjoy a little chocolate. I'm a certified personal trainer and nutrition coach who wants you to know your eating, movement, and body don't have to be perfect. You just need to be able to do what you're called to do. I am just so grateful, so thankful for this community and for your feedback. I will always take content suggestions and you can always email me. I think my email is probably in the show notes or reach out on Instagram. I mean, I will always take content suggestions, but every now and then I do specifically reach out and open the floor either on our Facebook community group. I also recently just did a survey about topics that you guys want to be covered. I mean, that you want me to cover. One topic that you are asking more of, and I hear you, I hear you, is related to women's health. Today is a little more meta, it's a little more specific, and it's the first of a two-part series on what I believe to be an under-discussed part of women's health, which is hysterectomies. Erica Rucker, who is a physician's assistant with the world-renowned MD Anderson Cancer Center, is here to educate us on different types of hysterectomies, reasons for needing them, uh, the impact on hormones, and like, what is this going to do to my hormones? What is this going to do to my body composition? Uh, what kinds of questions to talk about with your provider? This is not a cancer-focused conversation. So even though she's with MD Anderson Cancer Center, this is not cancer-focused. So if you have been wondering if a hysterectomy is right for you, or your medical provider has suggested it, this is a must-listen. So I mentioned this is a two-part series. This week focuses on decisions about um, what to know before surgery and kind of leading up to that. And then next week is with physical therapist Jessica Vallant, and she will take us from uh, like surgery through recovery and what you need to know to feel better. And I think you're going to really enjoy both of these conversations. They complement each other. And I'm so grateful that both of these women have agreed to come on and help us. Now, please be aware that we get into some intricate and intimate details about hysterectomies. So this is your chance to choose the right time to listen and who is around when you do listen. Now, let me tell you just a bit about Erica before I bring her on. As I mentioned, she is a physician's assistant with MD Anderson Cancer Center. You may remember Jenna Unke way back from season 
eight, which I think was in 2020, episode four entitled, How Do I Know If Something's Not Right Down There? Jenna came on and talked to us more about gynecological cancers, because that is her area of expertise. And so when I was trying to find somebody who uh, would be able to come on, I reached out to her. And I said, do you is this something you can talk about? Do you know anyone? She said, I have just the right person for you. So she connected me with Erica. Now, Erica was also a high school science teacher before becoming a physician's assistant, and then has been with MD Anderson's gynecologic oncology department, which is a real mouthful to say, and I'm so proud of myself for getting that through, by the way. But anyway, she's been with that department for five years. She and her husband have two children, and she recently started a balloon and decorating business. And I am so sorry, I did not get a chance to ask her about that. Okay, let's bring on Erica. Welcome and thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. You're a physician's assistant. You're in the um, gynecological, oncological, oncological, and I just totally miffed up all of those words. I'm sorry. (laughs) At MD Anderson and a previous guest, uh, Jenna Unke, who talked about, I think that our episode was called, how do you know if things aren't right down there? (laughs) So she kind of came and talked to us a little bit about um, ovarian cancer, cervical cancer, uterine cancer, like all the things that we really need to know about that are not necessarily covered at our annual visit. So if you have not listened to that episode, I've got the link in the show notes, go check that out. But I reached out to Jenna because I said, I need some, I need some wisdom and some experts on hysterectomies. And she said, I've got just the woman for you. So (laughs) that, um, that is how you and I connected. Now let's talk, let's just kind of start high level. Why might someone need a hysterectomy? And let's talk about what it is too. And my understanding is there's different types. So I'll just kind of pass the mic over to you and, and tell us like, why do we need it? What are the different kinds? Sure. Most of the time, I would say most patients need a hysterectomy for benign. We say not cancerous reasons. That can be for uterine fibroids, which are some non-cancerous growths that occur in the uterus, but they definitely can cause a lot of significant pain and bleeding. Um, Uterine prolapse um, can occur sometimes. Prolapse is where this kind of slippage of the uterus into the vagina. So that can be another indication. Um, Endometriosis is definitely um, very common, um, which is when the tissue from the lining of the uterus actually grows outside of the uterus and can again cause significant pain, um, infertility issues. Um, there's also patients who experience just heavy or very unusual vaginal bleeding and they've kind of exhausted all of their, um, you know, non-surgical options prior to. And then of course, cancer, pre-cancer reasons would um, be other reasons why patients um, would need a hysterectomy. There's a lot of things that are in there. I mean, I, I appreciate the the summary with that for sure. But I feel like I would assume, so I'll let you tell me if this is mm-hmm. right or not, but I would assume that there are varying degrees and levels within each one of those of like, okay, is this the right course of treatment or is there something else? I totally agree. Um, I think... I know, especially from our standpoint, we hysterectomy is not our first go-to. It is a surgery. It's a major surgery, um, and it has implications that come with going under anesthesia and things of that nature. So we do like to exhaust our non-surgical options and ensure that you know a hysterectomy is right for the patient, ultimately. Got it. Okay. Now, I have to confess that, so I'm 48 years old, and- mm-hmm. 
like I was really into studying my body and, and my, you know, all of my gynecological everything when I was Mm -hmm. ready, when I was having children and babies. And that Mm -hmm. was important. That was an important part of getting pregnant. And I, I kind of like, I finished having babies. I closed the door on it and I really haven't given a whole lot of thought to my uterus and my ovaries and all of that kind of stuff until now I'm getting into this perimenopause phase. And I don't know, I can't speak for anyone else, but that's kind of where I am. So one of the things that I don't feel like I'm very educated on, and I was wondering if you could help us is understanding the different types of hysterectomy. So it's, it's more than just taking everything out. Exactly. Um, definitely. I think it's it's interesting when patients come to the clinic and we have this discussion and like, oh, I didn't even know that, you know. Um, so I think it's very common for us um, as women to not know exactly kind of what entails a hysterectomy. There's a few different types. So the first one we'll talk a little bit about is what we call a partial hysterectomy. Sometimes um, it's also called a supracervical hysterectomy. So for most patients, I would say, or not everyone knows that the cervix, we kind of call it like a window to the opening to the uterus. So the cervix um, is attached to the uterus. So when we are doing a partial hysterectomy, you're actually just removing the uterus, but leaving the cervical. So it's super cervical. So leaving the cervix and just removing the upper portion of the uterus. I will say that one is not as common anymore. You know, I think uh, many years ago, it was very common to leave a patient's cervix. Ultimately, we've seen kind of with a change in, you know, educating and things of that nature. I believe mostly it was used for um, patients thought that by having your cervix allowed some, and this is kind of, we'll get more into this later, but allowed for um, no change in kind of sexual um, function or anything. Um, But ultimately that really is not the case. So I will say now partial hysterectomies aren't as common. Um, What we say we most of the time is what we call a total hysterectomy. So total hysterectomy means the surgeon removes the entire uterus and the cervix. And then there's also something called a radical hysterectomy where the surgeon removes the uterus, the cervix, and then um, some tissue on both sides of the cervix and the upper vagina. But that um, is mostly for patients who is being treated for a cancer. Now, are there any types that will also remove your ovaries or? So, and that's, yeah, sure. Um, Technically, the verbiage of total hysterectomy only includes your uterus and your cervix. You know, again, it's many misconceptions when patients come to the clinic or, you know, we're having a discussion and like, I'm not even sure if my ovaries were ever removed. Actually, the terminology for removing your, what we say, tubes and ovaries is called a bilateral salpingo-oophorectomy. It's fancy words for saying removing both tubes, which is the salpingo, um, and then oophorectomy is the ovaries. Um, But it's technically... It occurs sometimes at the time of your hysterectomy, but for some reasons, we also, you know, given the patient's age, um, sometimes we will definitely leave the ovaries in. So it's not always occurs at the same time as a hysterectomy. Um, But I think patients and people really coin those terms together when we say, oh, I had a hysterectomy. Most people will think they also had their ovaries removed, and that's not always the case. Okay, because that's kind of confusing, at least to me. Like, to me, a total hysterectomy would totally take everything out. But you're saying that no, sometimes the the ovaries remain. Um, Well, this is this is interesting to me, and I don't remember what kind 
this person had, but next week I'm actually having a physical therapist on and she's talking about like what to do after. So it's like, you've had a hysterectomy now what? And she was 42 when she had her hysterectomy. So she decided to leave one ovary because she wanted, she still wanted to cycle. She didn't want to lose her, all of her hormones and everything. So mm-hmm. is there, I assume a, I think you said that, that age goes into that decision yes. on whether or not to, to remove an ovary or not. Definitely. We, you know, um, and we'll talk, um, you know, more about these risks that come with removing your ovaries, you know? Um, so patients who are, we say the average age of menopause is 50, 51. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have patients who go to 52, 53. So if we are removing your ovaries 10 plus years prior to when you would naturally stop, um, your ovaries wouldn't be functioning anymore, then there's implications that come with that. So patients who are younger, um, you know, as long as ovaries look normal, they look to be healthy, there should be no reason that we remove a 42 year old uh, woman, remove their ovaries because they need their hormones for other reasons, which I'm sure we'll talk a little bit. Well, yeah, well, let's go ahead and go step right into that. So what talk to us some about risks of removing ovaries, maybe even risks with anything else. I mean, you know, surgery comes with risks no matter what, but yeah, talk to us through, talk to us about some of that. So whenever we remove our ovaries, you know, technically menopause, or we say this perimenopausal state, um, when we go through menopause naturally, it's kind of this gradual decline of our ovaries, but though of, you know, losing function to our ovaries. But when we surgically remove them, then we're putting you in an abrupt menopause. So patients can develop the hot flashes, the night sweats, the vaginal dryness, the decreased libido, all of these things, though that we definitely have things we can manage with medications and lubricants and things. But some of the other things I think patients don't always think about is the increased risk of bone loss, cardiovascular disease, sometimes urinary incontinence, Bone loss is really a big one, especially when we're talking about, you know, removing ovaries and someone who is 10 plus years younger than the average age of menopause. So some of the things we recommend for, you know, even if you're 45, if you're 52, whatever age you are, when you get your ovaries removed, bone health is is extremely important because even if you go through menopause naturally, you're still at this increased risk of, of bone loss. So we definitely recommend you take your calcium supplements, your vitamin D supplements, and do a lot of weight-bearing exercising. So that's very, very important for, from a bone uh, loss standpoint. What about relationship or implications with any kind of cancer, increased risk of certain cancers, decreased risk if there is some? Um, what about any of that? Um, of course, the risk of ovarian cancer for the general population is about a one or two percent. So, if you're not at an increased risk because you have a um, genetic mutation per se, a BRCA mutation, then technically removing your ovaries, um, of course, once you remove your ovaries, you eliminate the risk of ovarian cancer. Um, but in the general population, um, you know, if someone's going in for a hysterectomy, if you do not have um, a genetic mutation, then that we don't believe there you are at any increased risk. So we would not recommend removing your ovaries, if that makes sense. So removing your ovaries, again, most patients come in like, I just want everything out. Um, but if you're, it's not indicated, then typically we don't recommend removing your ovaries. Is there any reason to keep your ovaries if you've already gone through menopause? No. No. 
I mean, you've already naturally gone through menopause. So once we get to this gray area of like kind of age 50 to 55, it's definitely patient preference on removing your ovaries. But kind of after that age, then it's usually recommended that patients have their, if they're having a hysterectomy, that they have their ovaries removed at the same time because they're not functioning anymore. They're not providing us any hormones. So um, they could be removed at that time. Okay. And and that's just preventative, like cancer? Yes. Again, yes, yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So... I have heard, um, you know, I've had a lot of conversations with people. And then of course I hear, you know, I get DMS and stuff like that with people asking me questions. Cause I actually was like, Hey, what do you want to know about menopause? So a lot of these are, mm-hmm. uh, user supported listener supported questions, <laughs> which I'm so grateful for. I have heard people talking or asking the question about, you know, having a hysterectomy. And again, you know, it wasn't the, it wasn't specified, but let's just assume mm-hmm. a total mm-hmm. hysterectomy. Um, and the inability to manage body composition and otherwise, will I gain weight um, after this? So are there hormonal changes that affect this? What can we expect and how can we manage that? Definitely. If we're talking about a total hysterectomy where we're just removing tubes and I'm sorry, uterus in the cervix, we would not expect any hormonal changes, but I'm guessing that you mean kind of total hysterectomy with ovaries also. So we say um, removing the tubes and the ovaries also, because we are now removing your ovaries and you now are not producing any estrogen. It does actually data shows that it uh, lowers your metabolic rate. Our metabolism definitely slows down after menopause. When we're slowing down our menopause, after menopause, so that means we're not burning as much calories as we, as fast as we would like to even lose weight. We have patients who come in and say, I'm doing nothing different than I was doing before and I'm still not losing any weight. You know, I'm still eating the same, I'm exercising the same. So it does metabolically become harder for uh, women as we age and go through menopause to lose weight due to the lack of those hormones. You also can start losing bone mass and gaining more fat because of that. One thing I think it's in interesting and kind of as I've aged from my 20s to my 30s and having kids and though I may be in a younger age group than your um, audience here, but I think it's important for us to know that patients tend to say, um, say I'm going to, you know, stop eating this or cut out eating this. And actually as females, what we I've seen and kind of in the data and things that I've read is that eating those smaller frequent meals as we age definitely helps our metabolism, helps our metabolism kind of stay um, more active. And then also increasing our protein intake. I think people don't always think about protein. You know, you think about protein, you think about supplements and things like that. But that can be natural protein that we get from cottage cheese and yogurts and things like that. Um, So definitely increase, I've noticed increasing your um, protein intake and eating those kind of smaller frequent meals Of course, physical activity goes a long way. We definitely recommend 30 minutes a day for five days a week or so. We definitely see that that helps decrease weight also. So I want to make sure that I heard this. So when we have our ovaries removed, that has scientifically been proven that we will lower our, our resting metabolic rate. Yep. And again, it's not so much the uterus. It's not the uterus cervix. It's specifically the ovaries because now we have a lack of estrogen. Okay. And that's a, and that's a hormonal thing. And that goes along, you know, if I can put my personal trainer hat on for a moment, 
Yeah. This is why the strength training is so important. Exactly. Because strength training, when you add your muscle mass, whatever age you are, that will help your resting metabolic rate. And then at the same time, the right kind of strength training, which I'm leaning really heavily into creating a course on like (laughs) aging strong, (laughs) but the right kind of strength training, like particularly doing a lot of pulling motion will help prevent that bone loss, especially in your spine. Definitely. Uh, to prevent, I'm preaching to the choir. I know you know all no, of this, definitely. but I'm like, I think it's, it's important. Um, you know, I think as women, again, we tend to say, "Oh, I'm not going to do weights. I don't want to have bulky muscles." But um, really, building your muscle mass is so much. It's benefit beneficial, very beneficial for um, us as we age. Absolutely. Okay, so another question I had from my community revolves around nutrition. Um, you mentioned a few things in terms of calcium, um, but is there anything that we need to be doing differently um, after a hysterectomy? Outside is something so important. You know, we talk about calcium, vitamin D supplements, and I think it's something simple that we don't do much anymore. You know, whether we complain that Houston is hot or now it's cold outside for whatever reason, I feel like um, just getting sunlight, people don't understand the benefits that come from sunlight, vitamin D. Also, you know, we talk about supplements so so much, but if when we're focused a lot more on what getting a holistic approach of nutrients, balanced diet, then you also get a lot of the vitamin D, you know, from the fish and different milks and things like that, different cereals or yogurts, different things. So um, definitely the supplement, if you are unable to get um, the supplements in your diet, um, I definitely think it's important to take, um, you know, some type of vitamins over the counter, whether that's the calcium vitamin D, but also just a regular multivitamin, kind of one a day, women's one a day vitamin. I think it's really beneficial I would expect that most people do not get as many vitamins and nutrients they need in their day-to-day um, habits of eating. I've heard that called nutritional insurance. So <laughs> try and get it from your food, right, first, and then yeah. and then supplement yeah. <laughs> and then supplement yeah. where else. And it's really yeah. funny that you talk about holistic eating. I actually have an interview um Last week's interview with Ruth Opio, who is a um, integrative medicine counselor. So she's a a licensed counselor, but also integrates medicine into that like um, food and nutrition. So she says the exact same thing. So I love it Mm -hmm. when I have someone come on about mental health and then I have some kind of someone come on about hysterectomies and it all goes together. And I'm like, that's because that's the way that God wanted it to be. Like, it doesn't matter. Exactly. <laughs> it doesn't, exactly. Yeah, it doesn't exactly. matter what we're talking about. Like the God's way will work. <laughs> I totally agree. So I have a, like I said, I'm having a lot of conversations with friends about this kind of stuff. And I have a friend who was saying, when she cycles, I think her cycles are regular, but when she cycles, okay. it is hemorrhaging. And she said, like, after 15 minutes, I am soaking through a super plus tampon. And I mean, she's like, I can't go anywhere. I am. You know, and she said, I have talked to my gynecologist and said, I would really like to explore a hysterectomy. And the gynecologist was like, nope, nope, this, no, we're not going to do that. So our conversation kind of centered around when is it right to get a second opinion or to question that or, and when is it right to say, okay, you're the medical provider. I trust that you know more than I do and um, just go on being confined to home for five to seven days a month. First of all, bleeding that much, we say, you know, if you're soaking through pads within two hours, um, you know, that's not normal. We say regular bleeding is bleeding um, every, you know, it can last for some patient, it could be 28 
22, 28 days, 35 days, every 35 days or so. But, um, and then bleeding for about seven to 10 days, you know, um, anyone bleeding shorter than 21 days, lasting longer than 10 days, or like I said, soaking through pads, you know, within two hours, that's not normal. I'm not exactly sure if they've gotten an ultrasound and a possible biopsy, you know, if they've tried other not, um, management things. So whether that's do birth control pills or IUDs, you know, there's different ways to manage abnormal bleeding before, you know, going to a hysterectomy. But if ultimately the provider is saying, Hey, you're just going to have to deal with it. I definitely would get a second opinion. I think we have to be our biggest advocates for sure. Just hearing that I'm like, in my gut, I'm like, "Mm, I don't think that's normal. I would definitely get a a second opinion. If you feel like you've tried different things, you've exhausted different resources and the doctor's still telling you, you know, I don't think you're a good candidate or this isn't something I recommend. I think it's always a good opinion. Um, very good to get a second opinion. And again, abnormal bleeding, excessive bleeding like that is not normal. Okay. That's good to know. Thank you for that. I think Mm -hmm. especially for those of us who have grown up learning to respect our elders saying, yes, Mm ma'am, no, ma'am, you know, okay, that's what you want and not questioning things. Being an advocate for ourselves is Mm -hmm. really hard and uncomfortable because it is, it is. So thank you for that permission. And I'm, I'm going to get off and I'm going to call my friend and I'm going to say, I think we need to go get a second opinion. And so did their director. Yeah. And I mean, it's, if you've, you know, in your gut, you just have a feeling that something isn't right. I think it's always a really good idea to get a second opinion. Again, I don't know this provider, but um, sounds like this bleeding is not normal and you should not have to deal with this every single month. Um, have to stay home for five days, six days of the month because of your bleeding is so intense. So, And if nothing else, it's worth just getting checked out. I totally agree. So what kind of questions when we are in talking with our medical provider? I mean, this is a scary decision. This is like, I mean, we haven't even talked about the psychological aspects of feeling yeah. like, you know, we may be losing a little bit of part of our womanhood and stuff like that, which you feel free to address if you want. But I'm just, what other kinds of questions should we be asking our medical provider before we making a decision with them to proceed or not proceed? I think one of the biggest things would be, especially for patients who maybe have abnormal bleeding or pain or different things of that nature. I think we want to make sure that we have really... I want to say exhausted our options prior to jumping into a hysterectomy, because just as we stated earlier, a hysterectomy, you know, with a hysterectomy also comes um, surgical risk, you know, injury to bowel, bladder, anything in the area, and, um, you know, reactions to anesthesia, the cardiac problems. There's tons of things that come with surgery. So for most patients, I will say a hysterectomy is indicated, but I want to make sure that, you know, especially I feel like in the community, there are providers who say, Hey, you can just get a hysterectomy and go ahead. You know, I'll perform the hysterectomy, do surgery for you um, when it's not always indicated. So we definitely, I definitely would say talking to your provider about making sure that you've really exhausted um, your non-surgical options prior to, um, and then there's the opposite end where there's patients who want a hysterectomy um, and then the provider's like, yeah, I think we should wait. Then getting a second opinion is always a good, a very good idea. But I would say exhausting your, your non-surgical options prior to jumping into a hysterectomy. That's really good to know. Um, This is really good. And so if you're listening and you want to hear more about hysterectomies, tune in next week because we're going to be talking about like from surgery on and what to expect there. So this is definitely a two-part series. Like I told Erica before we uh, hit record, I knew that this was way too much. (laughs) 
<laughs> to go into in just one episode. Is there anything else I have not asked that you think is important that we know as we are learning to advocate for ourselves and as we are pulling in information to make the next right decision? I think especially when patients get hysterectomies for whatever reason at younger ages or even in our 40s, 50s, because that's definitely still very young. I think something that we don't talk a lot about is kind of sexual health, sexual function, dysfunction, should I say, um, you know, whether that's vaginal dryness, painful intercourse, you know, I think it's important for you to, patients to have conversations with their providers about things that they can do, because there are things we can do. We have a lot of patients who come in and say it's been going on for years, but there's nothing. I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't feel comfortable talking about it. Um, but that's one of the reasons you come to your provider. If you're having the painful intercourse, vaginal dryness, is decreased libido, you know, that's something you should talk to your provider about. There is no fixed pill that we can just give you and be all, um, but there are definitely things we can do to try to help, you know, uh, combat those symptoms. Um, pelvic floor therapy is really good. Sexual counselors are really good. Vaginal lubricants, and there's tons of things, moisturizers, there's lots of options um, that I just think patient, people are not always as educated on. Um, so I think sexual dysfunction is a common topic that we see with our patients um, that they just don't feel comfortable talking to their providers about. I'm really glad you brought that up. Thank you. Which actually leads me to another question kind of surrounding that is, I mean, does intercourse change at all for the woman or a man <laughs> when you have a hysterectomy? Technically, no. I mean, removing your uterus and cervix, we are um, not typically, I would say we're not foreshortening your vagina or anything like that if it's for benign reasons. So there should be no changes from a sexual standpoint. But when we also take your hormones away, the tissue is drier. It's not as stretchy. Um, it can be more painful. So I think it's also a lot of kind of psychological kind of things that also take a role into um, sexual intercourse after uh, hysterectomy. But you're also saying if you're having problems, talk to your provider. You should talk to somebody. Yeah. Yes. And don't be embarrassed. I remember Jenna, I think, no. I think she said this on air, but she said, you'd be surprised at how many like women in their fifties come in and in the, on the intake, she's like, you know, have you had, you know, what, something about your sexual history or something like that. And just embarrassed to even talk about it. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And again, you know, going to your provider, it should be a safe place for you to have this conversation. But I also think it's important for as we age for females to be comfortable talking to their friends about these things too, um, because there are a lot of people and friends who deal with the same things and they just don't talk about it and because they are embarrassed for whatever reason, but you will be surprised how many people are also going through what you're going through and how you can also be a support system for those people and even advocate, Hey, maybe, you know, because my friend told me this, maybe you should go talk to this person, you know, maybe they could help you out. You know, we really shouldn't be suffering when and there's things that can be done. That's yeah, that's a really great point. And finding a community and other people who have been through that. Uh, it is, Definitely. it's just so helpful. It's so helpful to know, like someone else ha is saying, yeah, me too. I'm, I'm there as well. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I have a few questions. I ask all of my guests. Um, one mm -hmm. is revolves around tattoos. So the deal is mm -hmm. I am a crazy person. And anytime I'm out and I see someone who has a lot of tattoos, I will ask them about it because <laughs> I have found that when people choose to put something on their body for the rest of their lives, they often have 
a good meaning behind it. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes, <laughs> most of the time. So I was wondering if you have any tattoos, if you would uh, be willing to share one and what it is or the meaning behind it. And if you don't have one, but you had to get one, what would it be and where would it go? I have one that says serenity, courage, wisdom, actually on my foot. Um, and I just remember growing up, that was kind of one of the prayers my mom would know I would get upset, you know, or something wasn't going right. My mom would always, you know, kind of say that prayer and tell me that's what I should be thinking. So it's kind of one of the things as I age stuck with me and I'm like, okay, I put I put it on my foot actually. Um, and you, you know, you see it, you think about it. So that's one that's really important to me. I hear the ones on the feet are boogers when yeah, you are getting crazy. them on. People, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Is that the, um, God grant me the serenity to, serenity to accept the things I cannot change the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. Yes. Love it. And so you just simplified it. I love it. Serenity, courage, wisdom. That's fantastic. <laughs> Do you have a meaningful Bible verse that you would like to share with our community? We haven't talked a lot about faith. Definitely. When I was in PA school, physician assistant school, um, it was definitely a rough time as in I was kind of isolated. I went to, kind of left my fiance and went to this Midland, Texas, and just definitely, I guess, kind of alone in so many ways, but had, you know, classmates, but it just is a different type of situation. And I, I remember every time I had a test, I would write this Bible verse at the top of my test. I used to get really anxious before a test. And so all th- I can do all things who, um, through Christ who strengthens me. It's definitely one of Philippians 4.13. One of the Bible verses is very important to me. So um, every test I would kind of write it at the top before I got started. And yeah, I can only do what I can do. I can, I can only do, you know, um, and he'll see me the rest of the way through. So what a great physical or visual reminder yeah. too, when you're doing that on the test. Cause yeah, I relate to that. I do not take tests very well. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell people how they can connect with you if they have follow-up questions, if that's even okay? I don't know how you feel about it. Yeah, I don't mind. My personal email is um, Erica, E-R-I-K-A, Boyd, B-O-Y-D, the number 11 at gmail.com. I'm also on Instagram, and I'm sure you'll kind of share those pages for... um, so anyone can definitely reach out. I'm happy to answer any questions or direct you to someone who may be able to answer those questions if I don't have the answers. Fantastic. Thank you for that. What is the one simple thing that you would like my community to remember? It can be something big. It can be something small, but just the one nugget to walk away from this conversation and remember. I think be an advocate for yourself. Um, I think as women, sometimes we tend to take the back burner on certain things and just say we can deal with certain things and whether you feel like they're not totally normal or not, but um, being an advocate for yourself um, and really pushing through when something doesn't feel right, um, I think is very important. Okay. That is all for today. Go out there and have a great day. 